on this episode of In The Rack Podcast. Let's just pump in four and a half teaspoons of salt. They're going to be great. This is going to help them get through this. But when you go home, you definitely want to consume only a quarter of that. It doesn't make any sense, right? Like, why is this a, a, a thing that we do? It's okay to do there. But then when when we go, we're going to restrict it. What you got? Welcome to In The Rack Podcast, where we provide you with a practical framework for breaking PRs in all facets of health and wellness. We are just a couple of bros giving you the simple hows in a world of complex wants. No filters, no scripts, no rules, just straight talk. Talk to them. Now, let's get into the rack with your hosts, Dr. Chad and Dr. Nick. All right, everyone, welcome to our sixth episode of In The Rack Podcast. For all of you that are just joining us, shame on you. But anyways, I'm your host, Chad, and with me is my co-host and fellow physical therapist, Nick. We have a good episode for all of you today, and we did talk a little bit about this last time. We talked about, you know, nutrition and saying, oh, what what are the myths surrounding nutrition nowadays, you know, and I think as we could talk for days about nutrition, we really wanted to focus on demystifying your diet. And what we basically mean by that is, can we call bullshit on some of the myths out there today surrounding some of the things that that we're eating? So Nick, what what are some of those things that we're going to be talking about today in, in regards to, to busting some of these myths? All right. First, before we get into that, I messed up. Um, every other week here at Proform, we fast on a Monday and I didn't think this one through. Oh. I'm I'm 20 hours into my 24 hour fast right now and we're going to be talking about food. It's going to be a tough one. If I'm making weird noises, just just ignore it. This will be another good podcast for another day for sure. Exactly. <laughs> um so the we're going to talk about three myths today and we're going to demystify uh those myths. The first one being based around protein. So the myth about protein is that if you eat too much of it, you're going to hurt your, your kidneys, you're going to hurt your organs, it's going to be too much on your body. Uh, just not true. So we'll get into that a little bit more. The second one is, is based around saturated fats. So those are currently regarded as the bad fats, the fats that cause heart disease, uh, heart attacks, all that kind of stuff. And we will go into why that is also not totally true. And then the last one, will be our favorite that's about salt and how currently it's widely believed that you should really, really watch your salt intake. Um, And we will talk about how, again, that is a little bit of a myth. So we will get into the the details on all these areas. Yeah. So first thing on the list, it sounds like protein. I mean, that's like the most important macro. It's also the most uh, favorite macro that we love here at Proform. Uh, I feel like most of us don't get enough of it. I think that's probably true for most people. Uh, we do a lot of nutrition coaching here as well. And we find that the one macro that people have the toughest time getting enough of is the protein. And now I'm not sure if that's because they were told that they shouldn't have too much protein or they just don't know the correct protein sources, whatever it may be. But let's let's talk about the most popular forms of protein first, and then we can dive a little bit deeper into the myths that surround these, these proteins and how much we should be getting. So let's just start and talk about the two main categories of proteins. Let's make this simple. It's 
animal proteins and plant-based proteins. So your animal proteins, which everybody's heard of, is your whey protein. Okay, that's a dairy byproduct. There's also your beef, your chicken, your egg, etc. Anything that's an animal byproduct is going to be a protein source. Now, you have your plant proteins. Those are your soy proteins, pea proteins, uh, brown rice, chickpea. It, you know, the list goes on. There's a million different types of, of proteins there. Now, we're not saying that one is better than the other. Um, that's a podcast for another day for sure. We do have our uh, take on what types of protein we prefer, but we'll save that for another day. But for all of you that know us, you know that we love our protein here. So Nick, how much protein should we actually be getting? So this is going to vary uh, based on the individual by numerous factors, not just height, weight, body type, all that kind of stuff, but your activity level, everything like that, your goals, those all matter. The problem with where we're at right now is that currently, so for example, the the RDA or the recommended um, daily allowance for protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. So just to give you an example, I right now am currently right, right about 205 pounds. So based on that number, that would tell me to eat right around 75-ish grams of protein per day. And I eat probably at least 215 grams per day. So that's those, those two numbers are, are vastly different, right? So the RDA is a lot of times what the nutrition labels are based off of. And the RDA is a number that's meant to be kind of the bare minimum for if you fall below that it could have, you know, negative effects in, in, in that you, you, you'll be mal, malnourished in that particular nutrient. So the RDA is this bottom safety net, really. But a lot of times we're operating, and the research is showing that we're operating all too close, especially in the, the American population. The, the studies are indicating that on average, American adults is consuming about one uh, gram per kilogram of body weight. So just over that RDA. Okay, so that, you know, is it that number that, that that's causing people to have these preconceived notions? I, I think it's a variety of factors, but I think over the course of the last few decades, with all the, the, the nutrition movements and all those types of things, there's been this conditioning effect that that has led people to believe that they consume too much protein. It's not good for you. You can harm organs and things like that. And then if you look at a nutrition label, and you see something like, oh, wow, this has 25 grams of protein. And then you go to the percentage. People look at the percentage like, whoa, that's 50% of my daily intake. That's crazy when you see that number, right? So that's going to manifest itself. Even if you don't consciously think of that next time you look at a label, you still saw that in the past. That's there. So that's that's playing a role in, in your decision making there. So if we're operating too close to the RDA, it's, it's probably not good because we're teetering with that that malnourishment line in terms of protein, right? Um, so the current intake of that one gram per kilogram of body weight that we're at as a, an American population is probably too low. It's definitely too, the research is showing us is too low for something like athletic performance or exercise performance, but it's probably all too low for just functional performance in general, just getting through the day. So we want to get that number up. Okay, and, and where you go up from, don't be worried about it because the there's also research showing us that the protein intake will, will become, you know, it, it can have harmful effects 
way higher than that. So you getting upwards of, you know, f- over probably 5.5 to 6 grams per kilogram or, you know, somewhere in the three to three and a half grams per pound. So I know I'm spitting a lot of numbers out there, but again, I'm 205 pounds for it to be kind of detrimental to my uh, body organs, all that kind of stuff in, in a bad way. I would need to consume 500, 600 grams of protein. That's a lot. I don't know if I could eat that much. That would be stuffing my face to say the least. Now, there will be some individual variants to this, obviously. So some people can just tolerate more than others. But what we recommend here at Protein uh, Proform a lot of times is, you know, take your ideal weight. So if you're overweight right now, just pick, pick your whatever weight to you is ideal and aim for one gram per pound, or that would come out to right around two grams per kilogram. But, it, you know, in, in the U.S., a lot of times we think of things in pounds, right? So one gram per pound. So I'm 205. If I aim for 205 grams, that's probably a good number. If I don't get to it, that's okay. I'm still m- well over my 0.8 right? My 0.8 uh, gram per kilogram. So aiming for that one, one gram per pound is a fantastic number to try to aim for. If you are less active, you can go a little bit lower than that. If you're more active, you can go a little bit higher. I just said, you know, the, the numbers that are, you know, start to have negative effects are even higher um, than, than three. So you can play around that one and be totally fine, totally safe. And you're well above the RDA, the, the recommended daily allowance. And it's still very safe. Okay. Now there was some research a couple of years ago out of Australia, New Zealand, and they actually showed that uh, I think it was in elderly men. They had them consume two times the RDA, so the the 0.8 um, for protein, and they increased lean body mass. They were able to increase lower body power without really any kind of emphasis on that in terms of training. So it, their, their metabolic health improved, all that kind of stuff. So there's huge implications for just increasing protein by itself. You know, if, if we're, especially in that elderly group, if we're increasing, um, you know, the, the, the lean body mass, lower body power, you're talking about decreased falls, decreased rates of, uh, you know, injuries, fractures, stuff like that. That's great in that population. And then you go down to the, the, the younger populations, same thing. Falls may not be as big of an issue there, but now we're talking, you know, improved functional performance throughout the day, improved exercise performance, recreational sport performance, all that kind of stuff. That's all fantastic. So there's a lot of research that's going this way now, but we still have to fight these these inner urges and, and preconceived notions based around protein being bad or harmful for us. Okay, it's 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 really not that cut and dry as as we we tend to think about it yeah and you know like like nick i'm i'm definitely on the high side with my protein as well i i mean i'm i'm 230 pounds and i take close to 350 grams of protein a day which is about one and a half times my body weight in grams of protein so i feel great i'm still alive i didn't die so i think it's totally fine uh and 1.5 isn't even outrageous i mean you could get up to three times you know i've never been that high and like nick said i I don't know if I could get 500 grams of protein. I mean, I probably could, but I probably wouldn't feel as good and I'd be missing out on all those nice other macros that that I like throughout my day. So, And on top of that too, don't think that just because you're going you're gonna to consume as much protein as us that it, it makes you a meathead or it's going to make you huge and bulky. It, it's really not. There was a really, really cool study that was done um, recently that they took two groups. They, they, were, they were men, but and they were all... Um, into strength training. So they were all 
probably in some sort of calorie surplus already. They were all consuming high protein anyway, or what would, be, what would be considered high protein. They took the two groups, split them in half. One group, they kept the same. So let's just say that they, they were my size, 205 pounds. They were all consuming 205 grams of protein. They took one group. They made them consume 400 extra calories, but all in protein. So that's another 100 grams of, of protein. So now this other group is consuming 305 grams. Both groups gained the same amount of lean body mass. So in terms of getting bulky, they got the same amount of bulky. But the group that ate more, 305 grams of protein, they ate more protein and more calories, which when you hear that, you're like, oh, they must have gained more weight overall. They actually lost more fat. Okay, so that's a huge implication for a lot of people out there who are saying, oh, well, I just want to lose weight. I don't want to get bulky. All right, well, there you go. Increase your protein because you need that to not only help you lose weight, but to maintain the muscle mass, the healthy mass that you need. And then you're going to be a better fat burner. And there's a huge thermogenic effect of protein. So when you eat more protein, your body is working harder to digest it. So you're burning more calories through digestion. Yeah, I think that's a valid point. I mean, a, a lot of people don't look at the um, the breakup of the calories that you're eating. They're just looking at the total calories. And, you know, for like Nick and I, I mean, we could eat 3,000, 4,000 calories, be like, oh my gosh, that's a ridiculous amount of calories. But you don't know that 40% of those calories are actually protein. You know what I mean? So it, it does make a huge difference in how you utilize those macros as opposed to saying, uh, well, geez, you know, half of that is carbohydrate or fats or whatever, you know, so it, it does make a difference. It, all make, it also makes a difference on the individual as well, you know, so I think we can say that that this is this definitely varies based on the individual, but it's a good start and it's a good gold standard. And I would also say that not all protein is created equal. So we now know how much protein we need to get or, you know, a ballpark figure anyways. We know where we need to start. But now I know that all of you guys are out there listening and saying, but which protein do I get, man? There's like so many different kinds. I know. Like you go to the store and you could see plant-based protein, animal-based protein, whey protein. Which one are they talking about? And I will probably say that most of those studies are probably whey protein-based, I would have to imagine. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I want you to all understand, and this is, again, this is a podcast for a different day, but the main difference between an animal and a plant-based protein is basically their amino acid profile. So basically what that means is, is that most animal proteins are what they would consider a complete protein. This means that they have all of the nine essential amino acids. And we're not going to go into depth about amino acids. I mean, let's just call them the building blocks of protein and say that they are important in like, you know, protein synthesis, you know, muscle building, but also they're good for digestion and also your metabolism. And the list goes on. So Let's just say that, you know, most plant proteins are, are not complete proteins. We would call those incomplete proteins, meaning they're missing at least one of those essential amino acids. Now, that doesn't mean that it's bad for you. It just means that you need to somehow get that in another way, whether it's through supplementation or other dietary dietary needs. So just to give you an idea, amino acids, there's like total of 20, all right? Nine of those 20 are what they consider essential. And basically what that means is, our body can't produce those essential amino acids. We have to get those some other way. Usually it's through diet. Um, you can get it through um, supplementation as well. It doesn't have to be just through whole foods, but we, we recommend you get them through as, as much as you can through whole foods. So 
I know a lot of you are like essential amino acids. Okay, that's cool. I've never heard of that, but I've heard of branch chain amino acids. That's pretty popular nowadays. I know everybody's got a branch chain amino acid drink in their hand probably right now. Um, you probably drink them throughout the day. It's not bad. I do it. I'm guilty. <laughs> I do mix the essential amino acids and the branch chain amino acids. But what the hell's the difference? So basically, the branch chain amino acids are essential amino acids, but it's only a mixture of three essential amino acids. If you're curious as to what those are, it's leucine, isoleucine, and valine. And those are the three main essential amino acids that are in branch chain amino acids. That's why they call them branch chain amino acids. So if it was up to me, I would take essential amino acids throughout the day, but you don't even have to take them throughout the day. It's not necessary if you're getting them through the food that you're eating. So let's just say not all protein is created equal. And for the sake of time, Let's just focus on whey protein for a second, okay? Because I know that's what most people are, are familiar with. They know what whey protein is. They've seen it. They've heard of it. They've probably taken it themselves, okay? So whey protein is actually, if you are not familiar with it, it's actually derived from a dairy product. It's actually the byproduct of making cheese. And for all of you guys that have opened up like a yogurt container at one point in time and you're like, Ugh, what's this shitty liquid on the top? That's your way. That's your way, baby. <laughs> that's the good stuff right there. Mix that stuff in there. That's that's what you want to eat. And in addition to that, it there are many different types of whey protein. Okay. So there, I mean, you look it on the shelf. I mean, the two main ones that you're going to see are concentrate and isolate. Um, the concentrate really is about 70 to 80% protein, but it does contain more lactose and fats, but it also has more of the nutrients that come with the whey. So that's why we tend to like the concentrate a little bit better. The isolate is about 90% protein. So they filter this a little bit more, it contains less of that lactose and it contains less fat, but you're losing some of those beneficial nutrients that are usually found in the whey protein concentrate. So they're not both I mean, it's not necessarily bad, especially if maybe you're sensitive to lactose, then maybe that isolate might be better for you than the concentrate. However, the concentrate tends to be the better one. Not only does it taste better, not only is it more affordable, um, but you're also going to get those nice nutrients that are found naturally in a way that you wouldn't get through the isolate. Okay, so I think that's that's probably pretty solid with the protein. I think we covered that. So if you guys have any other questions on that, just let us know. Um, as much as Nick and I could talk about protein all day, we definitely have another important macro to talk about, and that is fat, specifically saturated fats. So Nick, why is it that saturated fats have been given such a bad rap? I mean, unsaturated fats have been getting all the praise. I feel like this is something that we need to address. It definitely is. This is something that I, I do think that the narrative is switching on this. It's shifting. People are starting to understand the positive role that saturated fats play. And just to, to be clear, you need both. You need both saturated and unsaturated. But the the movement over the last half a century has been pushed so much towards unsaturated fats that everyone's balance of, of those fats is, is way out of whack. So everyone's really, really steering clear or trying to limit their saturated fats because of these uh, this mainstream narrative that has really pushed them as the bad fats. And it's really just not the case. Honestly, you could you could make an argument that it's the opposite, that saturated fats are the good fats, unsaturated are the bad fats. I don't think it's that simple to say one's good, one's bad. I think it's just the the fact that we're in a posi- in a place right now where saturated fats have been demonized. So we consider them as being bad when that's just not the case. 
uh, we really have to look at, at history with this. So you, if we go back to the 50s, Ansel Keys, pretty popular name. Um, you may have heard of it, him or, or not, but he was the, the researcher who um, was out to discover what was causing this, this random rise at the time in, in heart disease. And he, he carried out a big study over the course of, I think it was like 22 countries, but then in, in his results, he couldn't find any, any one thing nutrition-wise. And that's because there's, it's very multifactorial. But anyway, he was looking for one thing that was the sole cause of this increase in heart disease. And he made a stretch, really, of extrapolated data, pick, picked and, in, in, um, you know, chooses data from just a couple of the countries. And it, it resulted in this whole anti-saturated fat movement and anti-cholesterol movement that, you know, precipitated for the next few decades. And we got, we even got to the point where, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, we had the anti-fat in general. Everything was fat-free, right? And that's a problem in and of itself as well. But anyways, this movement started in the, the late 50s, which is when heart disease began to skyrocket. And it continued to rise over the next 50 years. But our consumption of fats, especially saturated fats, actually went down. So the graphs are the exact opposite. So if we're going to make the claim that saturated fats cause heart disease doesn't make any sense because the grass are the exact opposite. Okay. So what happened in that time that, that this, you know, rise in heart disease, you know, occurred there, there was a lot of different things, but one of which nutrition wise was this, um, over consumption for sure, but increased consumption of highly processed seed oils and vegetable oils as well as processed foods and, and processed sugars, white flour, that kind of stuff. So we started consuming all this processed food that had all these fake fats as well as, you know, fake sugars, all that kind of stuff. But in the process, we just started demonizing and blaming saturated fat, like butter, all the, all the animal fats, all that kind of good stuff, eggs, that, you know, we, we started saying that those are bad, those cause all this stuff, when it, in, in reality, they really don't. And and the recent research is really showing us that saturated fats can be cardioprotective. You know, our, our heart and even our brain really prefer to run on this, this saturated fat. Um, so what's, what's really interesting about uh, saturated fat versus unsaturated fat, if you look at human breast milk, it is roughly 50% fat, the, the contents of it. Obviously, that's going to vary based on the individual. But overall, it's, it's, it's roughly 50% fat, most of which is saturated fat and cholesterol. And that's because those things are necessary for, you know, development, growth, the, the nervous system uh, developing, and, and just the brain growing and developing as well. So if our breast milk, if the human breast milk naturally contains that, but then you have companies nowadays making these formulas in artificial milk with no saturated fat, all unsaturated fat, no cholesterol, and crazy amount of sugar that's just, that's wild that this is what happens in nature but then we go and do the exact opposite okay so we wonder why we're having all these issues in you know these pediatric issues childhood um you know add adhd obesity all this kind of stuff I, you, the, the list goes on anxiety depression right you can definitely make make a case that this is playing a role is it the sole cause absolutely not nothing is ever that myopic or that that uh simplistic especially when it comes to the human body which is super complex um but another 
you know, a couple other things regarding saturated fat. If you look at the uh, the world in in certain countries that have the highest life expectancy, Japan is the highest lifespan overall. They have diets that are rich in saturated fat, you know, fish, eggs, pork, beef, all that kind of stuff. They don't eat much of any of the process, aside from white rice, the, the white flour processed sugar, they don't eat much of that at all. So they don't have much of that in their diet. They have all this other saturated fat. Yet we try to attribute their, you know, their, their high life expectancies to other stuff. We don't, we just ignore the fact that they eat a ton of saturated fat, but that's the reality of it. And then if you look at the, the two, three, and four countries, I think it's uh, like Switzerland, Austria, Greece, same thing, high saturated fat in their diet. And then you have what's called the French paradox. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of this, but this is the idea that um, it, I think it developed in, in the 80s. But the the French population, they have like half the rates of heart disease uh, compared to the, the U.S. But they have very similar rates in all these other diseases. So, you know, it, it makes you really think like, oh, what's so different? Like, why are their heart, the heart disease rates so low, but everything else is the same? And if you look at their diets, they, they eat a ton of fatty, fatty foods, eggs, butter, uh, liver dishes, liver pate, all that kind of stuff. They use a ton of duck fat, goose fat, all that stuff, high in saturated fat. But they also, like the U.S., consume excessive amounts of sugar, flour, everything like that. So if you look at that, this sat, their high saturated fat is being protective of their hearts but all their other organs and, 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 and things like that are, are at risk for disease because of the high processed foods as well, right? So we see this all over the world, but we still have this preconceived notion that saturated fat is bad. Again, anything could be bad in, in, when it's consumed in high amounts, but right now we have, we are way, we're unbalanced. Our, our unsaturated fats are blowing our saturated fats out of proportion. And even something like, you know, omega-6s to omega-3s, right? Omega-3s, fish oil, that's highly regarded right now as being good, yet we still take take in way too many omega-6s, and that comes from a lot of your vegetable oils, your seed oils, that kind of stuff. Even right now, Chad and I were just talking earlier, the RDA, the recommended daily allowance for um, omega-6s is like 17 grams per day for a male, but the omega-3s is 1.6 grams. Yet we say the ratio should be one to one, but we tell people 17 grams versus one and a half grams. That's not a one to one ratio. I'm no close. mathematician, but no, that's not, that's not, not a one to one ratio. But anyway, if you, if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of, um, you know, saturated versus unsaturated, it, it's, it's going to be, again, going to be different for everybody. Everybody's different, but we are, we've again, just like protein have demonized saturated fat. So everyone is likely under consuming saturated fat. We're missing out on a lot of good stuff as a result. And you're probably in a place where you can increase your intake of saturated fat and gain benefits from it, not harm your body because you're already at such a low level that if you were to increase, you're probably just going to be more at a, at a normal level. Um, so it's, it's super big. And if, if, if you want to, if you're someone who's like, well, I, you know, I, my goal is to lose weight. Well, saturated fats can actually help that because they're high in stearic acid, which actually tells your fat cells to, to, to shrink or you know, decrease their size. Whereas your unsaturated fats are higher in linoleic acid, which tells the fat cells to swell up. That's a, a general, um, that, that was very scientific, I know. But no, that's a general, you know, 
that's that's a broad kind of overview of what they do. But in general, that's what's happening. So if you have a diet that's high in unsaturated fats or much higher than saturated fats, you will likely have, you know, more swollen fat cells versus if you're more saturated fats, um, you'll almost have like that, that, that leaner look because your fat cells are, are shrunk down in size to some extent. After just listening to Nick talk about all the saturated fat and the importance of the saturated fats, I think we can all agree at the end of the day that the general population probably doesn't need to worry about saturated fats as much if we're consuming them on a daily basis. Uh, honestly, in my opinion, there are probably other things that we should be spending more of our time on, like, say, reducing the consumption of junk food or soda, or maybe the fact that we should probably just be exercising more. That'd probably be a good thing to do. I mean, let's not worry about what we're consuming in terms of saturated fats, but maybe take a better jump and, and, you know, take, be more proactive about our health in terms of how we're, you know, moving throughout the day. So I would say this, um, just remember that eating fat doesn't make you fat and there's no significant link between eating cholesterol and your risk for heart disease. I mean, I think if we can get anything out of it, it'd be that. I mean, let's just put it that way. So saturated fats are good. Cholesterol is also good. And the reason, I mean, that story about the human breast milk, I actually didn't even know that until you said that. That's pretty interesting. I mean, that'll tell you, why are we trying to change things? I mean, the research has already been done. Evolution did that for us. Why are we trying to change that? I don't get it. So yeah, it makes you wonder. So. And and to, to follow, everyone always asks about cholesterol. So cholesterol goes pretty closely with, with saturated fat, but it's one of those things that, uh, again, demonized, but with cholesterol, what's happened is we have a very, very myopic view on cholesterol. We say, oh, it's elevated. We need to decrease it. But you can't look at that in isolation and make decisions because the body doesn't happen with, you know, it doesn't do things in isolation. Other things happen as well. So if your cholesterol is elevated, it's not always a problem. Um, so a lot of times, that will be what what doctors or, or prof- medical professionals will look at in isolation and make a decision based on that. That's not that's not fair to the body, because the body has likely done that as a result of maybe eating a a higher saturated fat compared to what you were eating before, or a higher fat diet in general. Um, so if you were to go on keto, there's a good chance your cholesterol, total cholesterol could go up, but that's not necessarily a problem because your body has adapted to that. Okay, so it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean that something's wrong, you know, and we need cholesterol. The cholesterol, the, the, the numbers for recommended cholesterol levels have gone down pretty much every decade for the last couple of decades. Now, why is that? Okay, if we're being, you know, getting into conspiracy theories, well, it could be so the pharmaceutical companies can push more cholesterol meds. Maybe, who knows? But the reality of it is, is that because these numbers have gone down, They've gone down based on the current um, state of our population. And like I just said, we've been eating less fats for the last 70 years. So if you take at any of those decades, a group of people from, from the streets, they will be consuming less fat than we were 70 years ago. So yeah, the cholesterol numbers will be lower because we're consuming less fat, right? So it's just... We're, we're studying unhealthy people. And that's the, the underlying um, issue with these current mainstream na- narratives for, for nutrition is that all of our information from these higher organizations is based on a lot of observational data. And unfortunately, we're just a lot of times studying unhealthy people. And that's a huge issue. We need to take all this research with a grain of salt 
because if you are studying, for example, let's just talk about this. So there's a big concept called healthy versus unhealthy user or healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias. Just think about this. If we're studying a group of people who likely is eating a ton of fast food, a ton of processed sugar, maybe even a, a bunch of microwavable meals, so they got a ton of fake, you know, sodium in there. That person is is eating an unhealthy diet, but then we try to nitpick something. We say, oh, their cholesterol is high. If we reduce cholesterol or fat intake, their cholesterol goes down. Oh, they're now healthier. No, they're not. They're still consuming a largely unhealthy diet, right? So that's what happens with a lot of these nutrition studies. They're observational. They're epidemiological. So we're just tracking it over time. We're watching what these people do. So there's not as many intervention studies in terms of nutrition. We're starting to get more, but it's just hard to control a lot of variables. So when we look at these groups of people over the last 50, 60, 70 years, we're unhealthier as a population. So we're studying unhealthy people and we're making decisions you know, in isolation based on the overall unhealthiness of the population. So it can be, you know, a very slippery slope. So that's, that's the big issue that's, un, you know, underpinning both of these themes. Yeah. And I, I think, um, people need to be educated on how to read some of these studies, because I think you're right. You know, let's just pick the unhealthiest population. So we get the results we're looking for. And like you said, who knows what the reason for that is? Uh, there could be a million. We could dive down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. I'm sure that it is. Also, but... I, I, we could, we could even go, go as far down. Uh, well, this wouldn't necessarily be a conspiracy, but consider this. So we'll take cholesterol again. And uh, you know, everyone's always worried when they go to the doctor, is my cholesterol hot? Okay. It, that's, that's the big thing. We're always worried about blood pressure, cholesterol, right? The, the two big ones nowadays. If you don't have adequate cholesterol, okay, your thyroid gland cannot function properly. Now, if you look at a lot of people, especially females nowadays, a lot of them are on thyroid meds because their thyroid gland is not functioning. Were we having these thyroid issues 100 years ago? I mean, yeah, we were probably having some, but probably not at the rates we're having them now, right? So if you don't have adequate cholesterol, thyroid gland cannot function. So we then develop this thyroid issue long-term because of our inadequate cholesterol levels. And the reason for that is, is it, you know, you could go into the science of it, but basically if you don't have enough cholesterol, you don't have enough iodine in the system and iodine is needed for the thyroid gland. But nonetheless, if we don't have adequate cholesterol, you don't have adequate thyroid. So it could be decrease in fat intake, cholesterol intake, be playing a role in this thyroid issue we have nowadays, potentially, right? So there's all these, and like I said before, nothing happens in isolation. But things are always affecting each other. The body is adapting. It's trying to, you know, do do its best to survive. That's that's what it cares about. It wants to survive. So it's going to make changes that need to be made in order to adapt to its new norm. The norm over the last couple of decades has been avoid saturated fats, avoid cholesterol in foods, stick to unsaturated fats, and, you know, all these other things that we've been doing. And that's what that's the, the goal of this podcast is to say that, okay, we need to stop thinking like that because we've actually been hurting ourselves long term.
This is the sixth episode of In the Rack podcast, and I haven't seen Nick so passionate about something. (laughs) (laughs) He went deep on that. Um, But I will attest and say it's true. I mean, last year I did a keto diet and I did it mainly just to test it out. And I ended up seeing my primary care in that time frame. And he did do blood work on me because it was the first time I'd seen him because I'm bad. I didn't go to the doctor for like seven years. But I did. That was the first time I went. Just happened to be on keto at that point in time. And I was on keto for about three months before I even saw him. And he asked me what my diet was, went over all the numbers. And don't you know, all of my numbers were within normal limits. But he still recommended that I eat more fish and decrease my fats, which I didn't do because I felt great. So that just goes to show you like, why should I decrease something just because someone says, you know, but my levels look great. I I didn't really see the reason for that. So I didn't do it. (laughs) But um, anyways, next. All right, wait, wait. wait, Okay, okay. Hold on, hold on. One more cholesterol. Oh, shit. All right, all right. It's fine. Just just because this is fun. Um, Sorry, everyone. Here's another. There's other... data that shows us and if we're always going to go back to data i'll just give you you know give you an idea the the data shows us that cholesterol actually acts as an antioxidant in the body it's a very very potent antioxidant now think about when you go to the store and you're like "Ooh, that 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 box or that bag says antioxidant it's got antioxidants in it i want to get it now right like we we love it and the nutrition co- or the food companies love to slap that label on it high in antioxidants well, if the research shows us that cholesterol is a, is a potent antioxidant in the body, why don't my egg cartons say potent anti or strong antioxidant or high in antioxidants? Why doesn't my, you know, my package of, of, of beef, of steak, sirloin, whatever say, you know, um, high in antioxidants, right? Cholesterol, we, we know it's a potent antioxidant, yet we don't give it the credit it deserves like the other stuff, you can go get any kind of vegetable, fruit, anything like that. It's like, oh, high in antioxidants, right? They slap the label on that real fast. They slap the label on some, even some of these processed things that, that might have, um, you know, be made with, with vegetable oil or something. And it's like, oh, high in antioxidants. Well, no, you could just get something very natural, like an egg or some, some beef that's high in antioxidants. And it's the, most bioavailable way for your body to utilize it or you could get the processed version that's just the label slapped on there because the food company wants you to buy it just something to think about (laughs) okay so um for all of you that weren't eating saturated fats and cholesterol you're now probably going to start eating them because nick told you to (laughs) so all right so let's get on to the next topic the next topic i think we can all take with a grain of salt literally okay no pun intended On a serious note, though, like why all the hate on salt? Like, why are we limiting our salt consumption? I mean, Nick and I take crazy amounts of salt. We love our salt. Maybe we're weird. Maybe we're not. I don't know. But what's the deal with all this shade on salt, man? Dude, I'm still trying to figure figure this one out. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I think just like the other ones where I think the salt thing kind of goes in hand, hand in hand with the, the fats uh, back in the 50s when they they thought there might be a link between high sodium intake and heart disease, hypertension, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, there's some research that shows if you decrease your salt intake, your blood pressure can go down. But what's funny about those studies that show that is it's usually a very, very small percentage of the subjects, the, the, the blood pressure actually goes down. And there's actually a good amount if sometimes the same amount of people have an increase in blood pressure. So, 
Um, you, you can't trust those studies. There's some big ones that, that it shows that the, the results are very much uh, variable. And a lot of that probably depends on the individual. So there's a lot of, there's just like everything else, there's, there's uh, protective systems in the body. Um, and when we talk about salt, you know, which, you know, is an electrolyte in the body, well, the sodium, right? The sodium chloride is, is an electrolyte in the body. And that helps maintain appropriate fluid balance within the, the vessels, blood, all that kind of stuff. So we have a mechanism in the body that helps regulate that if you have too much salt at once or too little right it helps regulate so this system uh it's it's known as the what's called renin angiotensin aldosterone hormone system but and we'll just call it the renin system for right now if you go lower than and let me just back up for a second right now the current recommendations for salt intake don't they say when i say they it's it's these you know is larger they? organizations yeah these larger organizations that that make all these decisions for us they say don't consume more than twenty three hundred milligrams of sodium and I believe they're actually trending it down yeah. I think yeah. they're trying yeah. to go less yeah yeah so that's right around one teaspoon of salt okay we can all do that right yeah but okay one teaspoon when you go below 1.5 teaspoons for an average adult your renin system okay so the system that maintains the fluid balance kicks on when you go below one teaspoon so that says that your renin system has been chronically kicked on all the time this is a system that's supposed to turn on it regulates it shuts off okay good it, it chills out for a little bit so it can rest okay fluid fluid gets on balance again it kicks on and then it turns back on, right? So it should be only turning on when needed. But if you consume, if you constrict your restrict your salt so much that you go to the the recommended one teaspoon, your renin system turns on and stays on. So what happens long term? It's just like what happens with insulin resistance. If you consume a lot of highly processed foods and sugars over and over and over pretty regularly your body becomes resistant to insulin because it's been that system has been chronically turned on same idea with the with salt in the renin system if you turn that system on and it stays on you become renin resistant we'll call it okay so now you're becoming resistant in that system so over time you lose that ability to efficiently regulate your blood pressure and the fluid balance so now i've lost that ability because i've just craft that you know i've overworked that system and i've crafted out and now my blood pressure is skyrocketing and nothing's helping except medication well a lot of times that's because you've just you need to you know resensitize that renin system and in order to do so a lot of times you need to increase the salt intake now that sounds crazy i know but that's because you have these preconceived notions right these are these are things that are already imprinted in the brain that we have to break down a little bit and I'm not saying you should just go consume everything that says, you know, high sodium on the back. It says however many milligrams, 500, 600, 700 milligrams, because if it says it on a box or a bag, there's a good chance that's process, highly processed salt. We prefer you to consume unrefined salt. So salt, sea salt, um, Himalayan pink salt, all that stuff is great. The, the rules of thumb for color, pink, beige, gray, you're probably good to go. If it's, you know, as white as paper, 
probably pretty processed. Processed salt's very high in, in metals, aluminum, that kind of stuff. You just don't want to be consuming that stuff. That's not good for you. No one should be consuming um, a diet high in metals. That's just not, not a good idea. Um, so that's a huge thing when it, when it comes to salt. If you look at, um, we're dropping a lot of history on this episode today. So if you look at historically, after World War II, on average, Americans were consuming like 3.3 teaspoons of salt a day. And at that time, so that's double of the salt we're consuming today. Yet heart disease was half of what it, what it is today then, right? So again, it's flipped. Before we looked at the, the saturated fat graph, same thing. It's, it's flipped. So we're consuming half of the salt, but heart disease is double. And then they were consuming, you know, twice as much salt, but the, the heart disease was half. Okay. So it's the exact opposite. It's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. That's, that's pretty wild. That's pretty wild. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's crazy that, you know, we're, we're kind of looking, well, I, I guess it's crazy that we're still eating all these processed foods, yet we know better. Um, I mean, salt is definitely one of those things that I think has been kind of shunned for many years. And, you know, you always hear in people, I just had a patient this morning, she was all talking to me about fats and salt. And I'm like, no, that stuff's actually good for you. You need to get that in your system. If anything, your body needs the salt. You know, it needs it to function properly. And it's, it, you know, you could be one of those people out there that's like, yeah, but I eat healthy. I eat healthy whole foods. And that's great. We're not telling you not to do that. But guess what happens when you shut all that processed food out of your, out of your system is now you're not getting as much sodium intake. And don't get me wrong, that was not good sodium anyways, but this just means that you have to supplement with other sodium, whether it's just taking that Himalayan sea salt, like Nick was saying, and just pouring it on your food, you know? Uh, I mean, I, I think I get on the average between, I think it's between 5,000 and 6,000 milligrams sodium a day. Yeah, that's right around there. The yeah, and I feel awesome. And honestly, I take it but uh, after I work out and I get, I get more energy from taking sodium throughout the day. And that's just me, you know, and I feel fine. So I, I think that the fallacy that, you know, taking in only 2,400 milligrams, just, just not enough, you know, and, and you got it. It's not just the amount, but it's also the type of the sodium that you're getting, like Nick was discussing earlier. And, and we're not, we're not saying just consume as much salt as you can. Yeah. Right. right. There, there's still an upper limit, just like anything else. But if you, consume moderate amounts. And what I mean by moderate amounts is probably more than what you're consuming now. Because like I, I was saying before, with the Renin system, we're all probably under consuming. So that system is, is just chronically turned on. But there was, um, you know, a huge study that it was less than 3000 milligrams was associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease um, and, and heart attacks and things like that. And then in, I think it was greater than 7,000 was so you're talking under one and a half teaspoons and over i think three teaspoons so that was also associated associated with increased cardiovascular disease stroke all that kind of stuff so if you go in between three and seven that's a pretty big range you're probably okay right and so that would be considered a moderate amount between three thousand milligrams and seven thousand milligrams right now there's a good chance you're sticking close to that 2300 so get up a little bit into 3000 and you're probably okay. And then it becomes a trial and error game for you. Figure out what works better for you. It's like, oh, I consumed 3,500 today. I feel really good. The next day you consume 5,000. I don't feel so good. Let's stick around 3,500, right? It's it. We, we make this thing harder than it has to be. 
But as long as it's good quality salt and sodium, chances are you can increase your intake because you're probably under consuming and you're going to be okay. You may even feel better for it, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And I mean, like Nick was saying earlier, Nick was talking about, you know, comparing the amounts of saturated fats amongst all these different countries and showing you what they're taking in versus what we're taking in. I know for a fact that Japan takes in, I think the most, I think they have the highest sodium content in their diet. And I think it's around 11,000 milligrams a day. I think I looked it up the other day, 11,000 milligrams on average, these people are taking in throughout the day, which is what, six times what we're taking. And they're doing just fine. They're healthy. I got to imagine that they're probably healthier than we are <laughs> as a country. So, um, and, and I bet you that their sodium content is different. You know, they, they eat way different types of foods than we eat. So we're not, you know, they're probably not stopping at McDonald's on the average, I would think. I mean, I'm sure there's a McDonald's out there, but I'm sure they're not all flocking to it like we are. And I think that we probably do take in a decent amount of sodium as a country, but it's the wrong kind of sodium. You know, we're taking in all this processed food. It just needs to stop. Also, consider this. If, you, if you've if you ever been um, admitted to the hospital or you know someone who's been in the hospital, they probably had an IV, right? So it is the norm for an IV drip to be 0.9, uh, 0.9 sodium chloride solution. Okay, so basically what's happening is they're, they're putting salt water into the body to maintain fluid balance, to maintain appropriate, you know, um, blood pressure, nutrition, all that kind of stuff. So they do this in the hospital and they supply typically the standard, I think is three liters of fluid per 24 hours. At a 0.9 sodium chloride solution, that equates to four and a half teaspoons of salt just from IV. So that's not even considering the food that that person has eaten for that day in the hospital. So yeah, it's it's cool. No, yeah, we can do this. This is this is the hospital. This is the medical system. Let's just pump in four and a half teaspoons of salt. They're going to be great. This is going to help them get through this. But when you go home, you definitely want to consume only a quarter of that. It doesn't make any sense, right? Like, why is this a, a, a the thing that we do? It's okay to do there, but then when when we go, we're going to restrict so so much that it actually becomes problematic, right? It doesn't mean you should go pump yourself full of salt water at home with an IV. Please don't do that. But the fact that they do that in the hospital, but then on the flip side, when you go home, they tell you, nope, you got to stay away from steer clear salt that's causing all your problems. That's just not true. Again, that's a very myopic view. Okay. So at the end of the day, we're probably all under consuming salt. We could probably increase as long as it's good quality and be better off for it. Yeah, sounds very contradictive. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Um, okay, so moral of the story. I mean, I think we've we've covered all of our bases here, I think, for the most part. Moral of the story here is, is get in your protein. Saturated fats are not bad for you. And add salt to everything. I mean, that's that's those are three big points, I think, here. So let's let's talk about what what's gonna come up in the next episode, Nick. Like we we uh I think we're gonna be talking more about like myths in the PT world. We were just talking about this today. I think it'd be a good topic to talk about. What do you think? I think so. I think I just had so much fun with this myths one that I I wanna keep talking about myths. <laughs> we might have to plan two hours for this next <laughs> one though. This one went a little over, but that's okay. It's all great information. So to finish this off, if someone tells you that salt is bad for you. Just take it from our girl, Jean Hamilton. For all you guys that don't know who Jean Hamilton, that's the Red Hots girl. She's my girl. 
And she says one important thing. I put that on everything. Do you? Thank you for joining us in the rack this week. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. You can also find us online at proformptma.com or on social media at proformptma. And remember, if you train inside the rack, you better be thinking outside the rack.